Good morning, everyone. Welcome to episode 92 of Bumper Sticker Faith Podcast. We're almost at 100. Jason, or Dr. Baxter, I was hoping that you would be uh, number 100, but uh, we're not, we're almost there. 92 is still good. I'll so, come back. Yeah, maybe that, that'd be good. So today on the podcast, everyone, we have on Dr. Jason uh, Baxter. Uh, he is a, a speaker, an author, and a college professor. And I'm sorry about my Ohio State memorabilia back there, but you are from uh, Notre Dame, correct? Yes, is, I am. Is that yeah, kind of teaching. That's right. Yeah, we'll have to send you some some gifts. Some yes, yeah, so I'm teaching at Notre Dame. I teach um, uh, great books. I'm teaching a C.S. Lewis class right now to, um, in in the English department. But yes, at Notre Dame. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and lately on our podcast. Maybe people have been wondering what's going on in, in my mind and in, in, in soul, but we've been doing a lot of stuff on C.S. Lewis, and um, th- there's something about him though that I that I really want to tap into even further. And I remember hearing uh, you a couple times on a couple different podcasts, and uh, your book, "The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis," um, and I got that book when you, you were talking about that. And it's just phenomenal. It's amazing. I love the book. Uh, I really Thank do. You. And uh, the ideas in that are really uh, they're putting f- they're putting forth, I guess, in a more um, not logical but more understandable way than a lot of the uh, stuff out there that I've heard and read. Uh, you really uh, help us to yeah. get inside the head and the heart of C.S. Lewis. And and the and the point yeah. for me is not so much about C.S. Lewis, but it's because I want to see the world as he saw the world. Yes. That's yeah, what do I you want. Think he, do you think he was a right-brained thinker? I, you know, by which I mean, like, so this sort of like creative, intuitive type, which would basically explain why we all love him, because he's so intuitive, right? Absolutely. And he just feels things. But also, he you feel like he's super, super clear. Yeah. Because every sentence that he writes is, you know, perfectly, you know, liquid, transparent. But then when you step back and think about something like, you know, transposition, which I'm just reading with my students right now, you think, what? How many different points did you make in this essay? And, and so, I mean, I, I really appreciate the compliment, but I think if if I'm if my intuition, if my hunch is right, if Lewis is what we call a right brain yeah. thinker, then just to sort of to sort of step back and say, okay, you know, across all of your writings, you know, you have this theme, right? <laughs> in a way that I, I mean, you don't want to be like irreverent to the yeah. master, right? But like, um, like, could you talk, I think in some ways, I think the book is almost like what you would do with the, with your favorite college professor, mm-hmm. right? Say, okay, I've heard you mention this now three or four times. Could you please say that again? And yeah, so hopefully the book is kind of like that, you know, just like you said, like it's a, it's a dialogue with the author and yeah. picking up on some of these, some of these, these things that we intuit and some of these hints and asking him to explain them further. It, and like Lewis constantly talks about nostalgia and kind of the funny part is, is that as he writes about nostalgia, he's creating nostalgia in my heart. <laughs> like oh, you, he definitely you, you is. feel it yeah. as he writes it, yeah. right? Yeah, but I think I think I would love that. It's such a beautiful idea. Like, there's such a difference between um, I sometimes joke jokingly say, you know, grumpy conservatives, mm-hmm. right? Who um, kind of you know we watch sometimes news, but we're almost kind of like cheering for the bad stuff, yeah. <laughs> right? Like we want the world to be falling apart because it, it gives us this some kind of like weird kind of sick um, adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, things are things are actually important as opposed to being forced to tend to our, our you know, our daily lives. So I think I think there's a kind of, you know, there's a destructive um, there's a destructive aspect to nostalgia, mm. right, in which it's kind of sickening and it's poisoned and it's suffocating. Right. You can't do anything because the world's become so bad. Education's garbage. Politics is garbage. Our leaders are are corrupt. And all those things might actually be true. Right. But this sort of like the, that this sort of nostalgia, oh man, for the good old days, depending on what your good old days mm-hmm. are, right? 1950s when men wore flat tops and women wore skirts or, you know, 1750s when men were honest <laughs> and new Latin and Greek. I mean, whatever your, you know, yeah. 50s is, right? But I think but I think that's kind of what, what's what, one of the things I love about Lewis is that he takes a sentiment like nostalgia and then baptizes it so that it becomes something more like hope. Hmm. Right. And that, you know, and, yeah. and isn't isn't that exactly what he does in the four loves that we have all these kind of natural inclinations, right? All of which 
are neither good nor bad according to their natural inclination. You know, I mean, the virtue, I mean, or the, the response of bravery could either be the adrenal system's response of fight or flight, or it could be sort of sanctified and high-minded, which spares the weak, right? Mm. And has a sense of mercy, even while exacting justice, and then it's a virtue. Or Lewis, of course, talks about that, the tiger love of the mother, right? Yeah. You know, the mother's love for children, you know, could, is, seems like a really beautiful, virtuous thing. It could be giving, mm-hmm. but it can also be a sort of, you know, suffocating form of manipulation in yeah. which she needs them to need her and de- actually debilitates her children so that they need her, right? Yeah. Lewis is very keen in these types of things that how our, our sort of sinful desires sneak into things. Mm-hmm. Even when we're pretending to be virtuous. So analogously, I think this whole kind of like glorious virtue of of hope is kind of like nostalgia baptized. Mm-hmm. And as I, I, you know, as I yeah. call it at the end of the book, which you're alluding to, nostalgia is um, or hope is nostalgia for the future. Yeah. In which this inclination that most of the time for us projects into the past. Oh, if I were only medieval, if I were only, you know, if I were only closer to the good things. Lewis's kind of cool point is, look, if you got Mm. back there, think sort of like Woody Allen, Midnight in Paris. Mm. If you went back a century, you would just realize Mm. that it was a century before and you could keep going back until the beginning of time and it would always elude you. So our our nostalgia is upside down and he turns it back up the right way. Our nostalgia, we place it in the past, but we had on uh, Dr. Hans Borsma last week and he, he talked about the beatific vision and that's the vision from the future. So in a sense, it's saying the same thing, like the beatific vision is our nostalgia in front of us, ahead of us. Well, I hope I hope none of your listeners are uh, are still listening after that. I mean, if they're still listening, then maybe they didn't get the point, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or I guess we have to we have to get there first that way. Yeah. yeah. So um, um, I heard a conversation that you and um, Dr. Mark uh, Vernon uh, had. And I can't remember if it was you or him, but he talked about this um, kind of low power uh, or low dosage Christianity as opposed to like the full strength Christianity. Maybe it was you. I can't remember. But we're, you know, walking around experiencing our faith, but it's kind of this uh, inoculated uh, vaccine kind of faith. It's not It's not the full strength faith. And what you're aiming to do, what, what I can understand is that you're trying to um, open the blinders and and return us back to that full strength uh, Christianity and like just an example I was I read till we have faces for the first time recently, um, but I remember like reading through that being in the world of um, Orwall and these characters who are not in like the uh, our our Western culture but. To me, it read like if I could read an account of Old Testament times or like, you know, way back thousands of years ago, the kind of uh, cosmology that they had, I felt like um, I could feel that, understand that, comprehend that for like the first time uh, reading a book. Because like even though Orwell didn't uh, appreciate the gods, she still believed in them. Like she still realized and understood that her world was created by them and and um, th- they were, um, and, and there was more to things than just what the eye says. Now the Greek, the fox comes in and tries to like explain to her that a shadow is just, you know, uh, a shadow is just, I don't know, light particles or something. But there's like this understanding mm. that no, there's more to even like a shadow. And um, mm. so it, like it really expanded my world. Uh, it gave me yeah. a picture of that. But that's what you're trying to do too. Um, in a sense, uh, increasing yeah. the dosage of Christianity so that we can see that there's more to meet, meet the eye. Right. Yes. And I mean, Lewis says that in, in transposition is very much on my mind right now, but so, Lewis says at the Yeah. End, what is transposition? Oh man. Lewis says at the end of transposition that in an age of essentially like us of, uh, you know, logical empiricism mm-hmm. of scientific fact finding, like we are, that will there will be this kind of strange. Uh, he jokingly says, "dog-induced consciousness," by which he means says, "Look, hey, if you've spent time around a dog and you say, hey, hey, over there, buddy, over there,' and you point, um, the dog looks at your finger. He doesn't look at what the the finger points at. Mm-hmm. He can't understand signs and symbols, right? Yeah. Um, but but humans can. However, in an age of sort of um, 
uh, kind of, you know, logical empiricism, nothing but the facts. We sort of train ourselves to look exclusively at the facts mm-hmm. and not to interpret them. And he says such that we could actually, we could, you know, legitimately be having um, a, I'll define the term in a second, a transposition kind of moment, an iconic moment, a participatory moment in which all of our natural all of our natural inclinations are being raised to a higher level. And the supernatural is sort of playing on our natural inclinations, like a great pianist presses keys on a piano. Um, And he's doing something more with it than sort of like within its mere natural capacity. And yet in an age of sort of, um, you know, uh, of facts like we are, we could say, well, we could we could switch out and look at the beam to quote another one of his essays of meditation in the tool shed and say well we just sort of describe the channel the circuitry um along which these experiences are happening just as say if if you were playing you know i don't know some sort of like glorious piece of chopin and i said man i'm just so moved and you said well it's just because it's the various frequencies of the keys yeah um you in some sense you would be like replacing the uh, an experience of value or the spiritual um with a mere sort of description of the material circuitry along which the signal arrives and then we'd be in some sense acting like the dogs but lewis says in transposition and and i think um i jokingly tell my students it's the second best thing that lewis ever wrote Hmm. um behind weight of glory of course (laughs) Um, but in in this, Lewis basically borrows a medieval idea of an icon or what you could also call a symbol, and he calls it transposition. And he uses the medical, um, sorry, he uses the musical metaphor of if you were to rewrite a symphony, and you'd say before the age of electronic, um, electronically reproduced music, if you were to rewrite a symphony but score it for a piano. Mm-hmm. So it's that you went to some great symphony like a Brahms and you loved it and it had all the brass section and sometimes the woodwinds and the instrumentation was just perfect and you wanted to hear it again. Yeah. You get a hold of one of these piano pieces and you go home and you play it. Um, now, if you've heard it, you can remember what it sounded like, but you have to reconstruct it. The full orchestra. The full orchestra. Yeah. But then Lewis makes this cool, cool movement and says, what if the supernatural world the world of value, the world of uh, of God's glory, the world of love, and in, in its purity is actually like the symphony. And this world is the limited language of the mere set of mm-hmm. piano keys. Or as he jokingly says, what if this world is the vegetarian substitute? Mm-hmm. Right? And that um, we, t- you know, mm-hmm. you sometimes meet people say, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to be a Christian because, you know, I want to go surfing with and drink with my friends in hell. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Our sort of, our sort of, he, as he says, our sort of bleak, ghastly, lurid, vapid, empty, deluded, adulterated image of heaven um, is happens um, merely because we're not able to imagine its absences as what is projected by positives, which are so positive that they make this world seem bleak. He says, you have to think of, um, you know, imagine you had a candle in a room and the room was all dark and it was and it was burning. But then all of a sudden you pulled back the blinds and it was the middle of the day and then you couldn't see the candle anymore. Heaven's like that. The spiritual reality is like that. Not like if you sort of blow out the candle. But the problem is for us, Lewis says, that when you tell Christians that in heaven there's no chocolate, <laughs> there's no mm-hmm. dancing, there's no college football right there's no uh, you know there's no there's no sex there's no um there's no playgrounds right there's no rock music that you know we think oh man heaven seems kind of bleak and uh and and va- it, what and what he says even uh, it's we even give it away and we say it seems so spiritual hmm. by which we mean it has none of the flesh and blood yeah. which really commands our loves anyway but so that's that's in some sense lewis's project and as you said what are you trying to do in terms of you know uh, a full dosage christianity um it seems if you're going to be faithful to the to the vision of lewis it seems what you have to begin first to say exactly that this world is the vegetarian mm-hmm. substitute and he, he he writes this letter to this little girl and says look hey, i'm glad you like my books but what you'll find when you're an author is that maybe out of every 10 books one or two sentences get it just right one or two sentences wow. out of 10 books. 
Um, I think, you know, similarly, analogously, think of our mm-hmm. think of our Christian life as one or two sentences out of out of every ten books we write yeah. with the with our lives. We get it right, you know, for a fifteen minutes, um, like every five months, <laughs> maybe or seven minutes every five months. I'm what I really should be. Well, mm-hmm. I'm beginning to catch out of the corner of my eye what I really could be. And for 15 minutes, well, I guess I already reduced it to seven. For five minutes, I'm actually generous. I'm actually repentant. And I'm actually beginning to hunger for a type of eternal reality, which some of the old authors say, mm. if I could keep it in mind, I could laugh at my sufferings, even my sufferings unto death, yeah. because what I possessed within was so infinitely uh, superior to everything that I had thought I loved without. I think that's what Lewis is trying to do. I think uh, that ratio might even be a little high for my life. <laughs> might be like four minutes. But I love in The Great Divorce, too, um, I can't remember the exact story, but one I think it's a criminal or someone who's um, uh, so anxious about the ways that they failed in life. And, and uh, whoever's leading them around says, you know, that's the great joke. And I have that, that, that line underlined on page 27 of my book. <laughs> Um, the great joke that we take this so this world so seriously, this vegetate. I mean, we should take it seriously, but it's not as substantial as you said as the next world. And I think another another place that I like to point out to people is like the resurrection accounts when Jesus comes back from the dead, and it says that suddenly he you know entered the room, and they say, oh well, Jesus' body was like a ghost, and he could move through walls. And I said, no, like that's completely backwards, actually. His, his um, body is so substantial and so solid now that the walls, are, this world is like a ghost. You know, it's like a train going through uh, our two by fours. It's, it's like not a problem. At least you know, that's the way I like to think about it. That, that, yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, and, and I think, um, and maybe the gift of Lewis is not just to sort of, uh, to to point that out to us and to say it, but his gift is, and this is something that really interests me as a scholar of literature, his gift is to be able to write about it imaginatively. He says that literature is this uh, is this way of creating a world with atmosphere, mm-hmm. such that as you move, if you move into the idea, if you lean into the idea, if you dwell within the idea and sort of breathe the idea's weather, then. Then we have a chance, and I jokingly say this with my students sometimes, then we're not streaming, we're downloading. That is, as within the sort of like domain of literature and contemplation, um, I'm not just sort of, you know, giving a definition of hope, which is already interestingly enough, right? If you called it, say, like I do, um, nostalgia for the future. But then if if somehow you could create this vehicle, we sort of stretch that out and created that very idea into a world, mm-hmm. you got something like Narnia, don't you? Or some of his, or till we have faces, then you're actually breathing that atmosphere. And to a certain extent, you're habituating yourself at being good at that virtue, which previously you didn't know intellectually had existed. And I think that's I think that's why another reason we love Lewis, he doesn't just have interesting ideas, but he's sort of a master of, again, to use that, um, uh, an allusion to meditation in the tool shed, he's a master at looking along the beam. And my read is that throughout his whole life, his teaching as well as his essays um, and his and his fiction, he's constantly rotating back and forth between looking at the beam and looking along the beam. And when he looks along the beam, he creates an icon, an image, a sacrament, a symbol, call it what you will, in which we breathe the atmosphere of the idea and thus become better at instantiating it, incarnating it, embodying it in our own lives. His um yeah his words are like they're like embodied words that's that's what it feels like is this stood out to me recently I was sitting through a sermon on Sunday and uh, you know you, you're just you're you're listening you're paying attention but then suddenly the um, the pastor starts to tell a story you know the first story in the whole thing and it's like everybody wakes up right uh, I'm paying attention suddenly and afterwards I was hmm. I was thinking um, like what is that about like. And, and an analogy yeah. to me is uh, listening to someone speak in a foreign language, and then suddenly there's like three minutes where they're speaking in English, and right. I can understand it. 
and it like it it it, it grips me. And I I know people like to talk a lot about story and that, but there really is yeah. something to it to be and to Lewis's ability to embody um, his logic in these. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, there really is something to to it. I'm I'm teaching a whole course on that right now. Just this very idea of sorry, what is story again? Yeah, how does this happen? And I think I, I think Lewis feels it, and uh, you know, in his kind of right-brained way. Yeah, uh, he keeps using all these types of metaphors, and such that if you went to him and say, "Hey, uh, Professor Lewis, why did have you devoted the totality of your life to to reading stories and teaching them?" I think he would give you a series of metaphors, and you might be kind of frustrated because you might keep asking. Say he might say, "Well, because story is like an imaginative world in which you breathe the air." You say, "I like that." But what do you mean by breathing the air? And he said, well, story is like when you're walking with a map and it has all those contour lines. Um, he used to be a Boy Scout. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've seen these things before, right? <laughs> has all these contour lines. And all of a sudden you pull the map away and look at the landscape. Mm-hmm. Stories like that. And you say, okay, I like that. I like that. It's a good metaphor. But yet what is story? That's what it's like. But what is it? I think he would keep giving you metaphors. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot of them. Right. Um, Story is like when you're inside the tool shed and you see this suspended beam of light, but then all of a sudden you orient your eye and you look along the beam and you see the sky. Mm -hmm. You say, okay, I love it. I love it. I love it. But what is story? You just keep telling me what it's like. And um, I think, um, I think he's very shy about this kind of stuff. He loves to describe what things are like, but if you keep pushing him, he starts to get a little bit shy. And now this is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. If you think about the end of four loves, right? You've been waiting for him to talk about love of God. And he finally gets there. But he gives you a paragraph, if your readers will remember. He gives you a paragraph mm-hmm. on divine eros of when you finally, your beatific vision, right? Mm-hmm. When you finally see the thing and let yourself be seen, which I think is, you know, sort of as difficult as, you know, an idea. I just let myself be seen for what I am in the eyes of the, of divinity and I just, I stop trying to pretend. Yep. You've mentioned till we have faces. Yep. I, I pull off my veil. I take off my mask. Yep. I stop trying to fake that I'm something that I'm not. That's right. And I just let myself be seen and let myself be loved. That's right. Right? Wow. And then um, you want Lewis to write a whole book about this, right? Mm. Dear C.S. Lewis, I love you so much, but please start Four Loves over and just call it One Love. <laughs> Just maybe I should write this book. <laughs> I don't know if I can. Right? Just tell me about divine love, but write about it at a whole book length. But he won't. He's really, really shy when he gets to this point. And I think the reason for that, and you also find these really interesting shy moments in in my favorite my favorite piece of Lewis of all time, of the weight of glory. He says, I know when I talk like this, you feel like I'm almost committing an indecency that I've put my fingers on the inner secret of your heart and exposed it. And when we begin to touch this thing, we begin to be almost angry at ourselves and we abuse it by calling it things. Oh, stop being so adolescent. Stop being so sentimental, mm. right? Oh, stop living in the dream world. Stop being such an escapist. And Lewis sort of knows that we have what he calls, what he calls in, in um, that hideous strength, the inner aching wound, yeah, yeah. which we were born and it only rarely wakes up. And sometimes through art, sometimes through music, sometimes through, you know, moments of worship. So I think ultimately for Lewis, story is about that. Story is, maybe we can just define it. Um, Story is the catching out of the corner of my eye, a glimpse of eternity, which awakens my inner ache. And I want to remain in the presence of that as long as possible. But I'm already suffering a tiny bit of sorrow because I know that in just a couple of seconds, it's going to evaporate. That's a story.
I get the image of, to, to get another analogy of uh, a teenage boy who, uh, you know, wants to be strong and um, assured of himself, but he just wants a hug, <laughs> you know, and uh, to allow himself. That's like that indecency. Yes. He, he wants to be hugged by his dad or, yeah, that's or, good. or, or his mom, yeah. you know. Yeah, I and, love that. I use I use that image all the time of just the sort of, um, I mean, I sort of imagine the college student. That's yeah, the yeah. age I'm most accustomed to teaching. But, you know, the college-age male going home, right, after his first semester away. And he might not even admit it to himself or admit it to his parents, but the first time that he sees his family, mm-hmm. he wants to cry. He wants to hug. He wants to go up to dad and, like, put his chest to chest with dad and say, dad, I just love you so much. I didn't know how much I loved mm-hmm. you until now. But what do we do? We go up and say, dad, dad, shake your hand. (laughs) Yeah. But Hey dad. Yeah. And this, like this thing, which we wish could emerge actually ends up getting suppressed. And so therefore there you go. The vegetarian substitute that, um, but Christianity in some sense is challenged in its glory is that it's not content with that. It's, uh, it doesn't want itself to be shackled by mere customs. Maybe this mm-hmm. is appropriate for the whole mm-hmm. nature of your podcast, yep. right? Um, Christianity is more than just being nice and kind mm-hmm. and polite mm-hmm. and well-mannered, but Christianity is the um, the the desperate attempt to excavate all that which is truly eternal within me mm-hmm. um, such that I live my life in connection with the eternal vision. Yeah. And that's why we love Lewis. Yeah. And, and that, that that unveiling scene at the end of Till We Have Faces that you reference with, with Orwell right. brings her complaint and she starts off um, with this thing that she wanted, you know, that she wrote a whole book about, but in the end it came out very differently and it was actually, I believe, like the real junk, <laughs> the real garbage that that um, yeah. that was in there and uh, and God excavates that from her. And once she has that out, her real, you know, hideous self out, then it's like there, <laughs> I love you. I love you still, you know. Um, that's right. That, that's but in th- some sense, I need you to stop clinging to false versions of yourself. Because when I say I love right. you, right? Um, yes. And you say, oh, you must love me because. That's right. Yeah. And then I trot out five or six like mm-hmm. false fake versions of myself. Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. But we cling so tightly to these fake stories about ourselves that it's actually, you know, that's actually painful. It feels painful from our perspective. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, it's like a painting that's being scrubbed away mm-hmm. with a mistake. And we say, why are you hurting me? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and the answer is I'm not. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just trying to get some of these false stories out of your life yep. so that then you could just sit there and be you. And you say, I'm naked. <laughs> and the answer is, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Right? Anyway, so we can't even be, we can't even be loved because uh, we don't even love ourselves. We love false versions of ourselves. And that has to be sort of disentangled from our grasping mm-hmm. fingers so that we're even capable of allowing, allowing the vision. And this is, I'm, this is kind of, I'm plagiarizing a little bit. One of my favorite authors as well as one of C.S. Lewis's favorite authors, Dante, um, at the end of his, um, at the end of his his journey, his journey to God, right, um, in which he goes through hell and medieval purgatory, and then uh, this medieval conception of paradise. Um, that's the I think that's the kind of big surprise. He's been looking, he's been searching, he's been trying to you know reach out with his vision and and see to the depths of things. And all of a sudden, for Dante, spoiler alert for uh, for everyone, the very end of the Paradiso is that he has to let himself be looked at. And that's a very is a very potent image, I wow. think. But I think I think Lewis he loves Dante. He's got Dante um, in his DNA. But to a certain extent, there might be a kind of deep Dante borrowing. That the highest form of, um, and I think this is so difficult for all of us. But you know, as a man, I feel like it's particularly difficult for me, mm-hmm. right? You know, because I'm a dad, I'm a I'm a husband, I'm you know I'm a teacher. As as the gospel says, I'm one who's accustomed to authority, right? You know, I I, I do things, I accomplish things, I'm so active. To, in some sense, just to allow that more kind of contemplative mode, just to let myself be as I am. That's really, really hard for me. But I think both Dante and Lewis are particularly um, intuitive about that aspect yeah. of the spiritual life. I wasn't going to go there, but um, that's exactly <laughs> tracks on with my story of, of where I've been and, and then the genesis of this podcast. Exactly. 
um, like I was a pastor and I, and a dad and all that. I still am a dad and a husband and my life just fell apart due to my own failure and sin. And I, and I kept clinging. I, I, I always clung to these, these stories. Like, this is who I am. I'm an author. I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm all these great things. This is why you should love me. And it's as if God just stripped them all away from me, unveiled me, showed all my ugly parts. And, and then to have people come back in your life, including God and my wife and say, no, I, I know you now. <laughs> like I, I've seen all there is to see and I still love you. Like it doesn't, it doesn't get any more profound than that. Like that's, that's it right there. Um, yeah. The, yeah. The ability to let yourself even accept forgiveness. Um, yeah. The ability to, uh, yeah. To allow yourself yeah. be loved. But again, I mean, isn't the remarkable thing again, just thinking with Lewis, right? We could say this, and even as we say it, we feel the distance between our mind's ability to see the idea and our heart's ability to live it. Mm. And then for Lewis, right, in some sense, the scholarly life, in some sense, the very purpose of story is to be able to take that idea which we merely see and eat it, <laughs> almost kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, like eucharistically mm. we take the idea and eat it through stories so that to a certain extent we begin mm. to digest it and it becomes part of our being right we don't want to just know we don't want to just see we want to be right and lewis is really cool on this right we don't want to see beautiful things we want to be beautiful and we don't just want to be beautiful we want to eat beauty and therefore and lewis says this is the secret behind all classical mythologies mm -hmm. the reason that they invented all these fawns and satyrs which mm -hmm. come back in his narnia stories it's because we want to project the types of beings which could breathe that type of atmospheric value and thus to a certain extent get a little bit better at it ourselves. What's the uh, evil enchantment? You talk about the evil enchantment that our age uh, is under. And yeah. uh, you do give the story from uh, um, Puddle Glum, uh, a scene in, in that book. Um, but what is, what's evil enchantment that we're under right now? And what are some ways that – I know we've been – kind of referencing ways that we can break out of it, but your thoughts about how to help this, these next generations break out of that. Yeah. Or to recognize it, wake up from it. Yeah. Um, the evil enchantment, uh, I'll use a couple of hugely pretentious words. So your listeners should turn off now, <laughs> but then I'll explain them. Um, the evil enchantment is what happens when you live in a world that has psychologically internalized the mechanization of the world picture. I'll say it one more time and then explain it. When you live in a world 400 years after the scientific revolution, you know, think um, Newton and Boyle and Leeuwenhoek and Descartes and all this good stuff. When you live 400 worlds after this, the, the mechanical, the mechanization of the world picture, so much so that you have psychologically internalized yep. it now this is something i'm really really interested in and i keep trying to write about it and um to varying degrees succeed but not perfectly yet but essentially i call it life within the grid mm -hmm. that is we get we get good at describing how things move yep. how things interact we're good at looking at their exteriors and describing it what they're made of Exactly. Yep. But we sort of begin in the beginning and say, well, I mean, there might be inner properties, spiritual properties, eternal properties, but for my present purposes, I'm going to ignore them because I have this method. Um, and I'm just going to focus on their exterior bodies and how their, their molecules and atoms interact. Mm -hmm. But if you did that long enough, you might even forget that there are other interesting questions which you had temporarily bracketed that you wanted to get back to. Um, and you might've forgot that these were questions you could even ask. Thus, I, I, my metaphor is, you know, you're looking at a chain link fence, right? And you're looking through it and you're looking at a landscape, but if all of a sudden your eyes readjusted and you looked at the links themselves, what if you looked at the links so long that you forgot to look at the landscape <laughs> behind it? Right. Um, in this way, and this is, I mean, super interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Lewis thinks that we basically have lived in a world which describes reality as if it were a machine for so long 
that machine-like metaphors have snuck into our vocabulary. Yes. And they control our emotions. Like the mind um, is a computer, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hang on, let me process that for a second. Oh, whoops, I reverted back to my <laughs> default setting. Hang on, I'm trying to, right? Um, or, yeah, we have we have tons and tons of metaphors uh, which are borrowed from the machine. Like, for example, my favorite is we go to human resource offices because we want to labor to produce products for consumers, right? I mean, what am I, you know, what am I, like a 19th century wow. factory? Yeah. That I treat of my life in terms of optimization and productivity. Um, if your readers are, in, you know, listeners are interested, I've I've written on this um, in a piece on Zuck, on Mark Zuckerberg and his open letter to his daughter, um, which they can find on my website. But okay, so so th- if you were lived in such a world, and then all of a sudden had had an experience of eternity through art, through worship, through friendship, mm-hmm. right? What if you go home? You're the college man. What if you go home to dad? And you don't do the, hey, dad, how you doing? But you just hug dad Mm. and feel it. Mm. The problem is, the evil enchantment is is that what might be an experience of eternity, what might be our mere sort of natural desires being raised to a higher level, um, we think, oh, that's just my emotions. Yep. Because we've lived in the mechanized, we've lived in this conditions of the internal psychological internalization of the mechanization of the world picture for so long that we've we've become habituated to distrusting even our own experience that it might have something to do um, with it with a taste mm-hmm. for eternity. The picture now, that- Lewis even yeah, he, Lewis even includes himself in that category. He's a oh, yeah. he's a recovering modern. That's what I like to call myself. Um, I'm recovering modern. The picture I like to think about is is literally a picture. Let's say you hand me a, a photograph and I could look at that photograph and say, oh, those are just ink dots. <laughs> that's exactly. all there are. Yeah, but, but digital pixels. Yeah, yeah exactly. digital pixels. That's all they are. That's the, the, the modern way of looking at things. What is it made of? Um, but now you look at it closer and if you allow yourself, you say, no, it's a person in that picture. You know, that's another layer right there. That's right. And then what if you go a third layer deep and you say, oh, that's a picture of my wife. It's like, wow, that's a, a, that's, that's a whole other level. Now, a fourth level, <laughs> I don't know why my mind goes here, but it does. But let's say the picture of my wife shows that she's in some kind of danger. Then it's like, there's like four different significant layers. Now, you could look right. at it and say, oh, it's just right. pi- pixels. But you could look at it and see the full thing, you know, and, and allow it to grip you and act on it as well. That's right. And there's so much... To our world, like I, even even our this infects. This is where I get passionate about, but it infects our seminaries and our Bible teaching and our exegesis too, because That's it's right. it's crept into the way we understand Scripture. So I remember le- learning Greek in seminary, and you learn the word pneuma, and they teach you, you know, very you know, the scientifically pneuma can mean breath, uh, wind, or or air, right, or spirit, any of those things. But depending on the context, you have to choose. It's like mm-hmm. okay. Here can be, here it means wind, there it means spirit, whatever. But what if, what if, what if we look at the whole picture and take it all in? What if it always means all of them? Right. What if every yeah, time it talks about the wind, you're talking yeah. about the spirit of God or your or the human spirit? You know, like right. beginning right. to put it all back together. Right. 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 Well, I mean, it's so funny that you say that. Um, in Humphrey Carpenter's really cool biography, like kind of like triple or quadruple biography of the Inklings. You know, he writes about that great conversion scene of Lewis, which happens um, uh, at Maudlin College Mm -hmm. in the Deer Park uh, in Oxford, in which they're all sort of talking about mythology. And and then someone says something, I think Tolkien or someone like that, or Dyson, someone says something about, you know, about wind and the breath. And right as that happened, there's this was a big, huge gust of wind that picked up all these giant sort of leaves from all these ancient English trees and created this kind of dry rattle. And they all looked at each other and laughed because it seemed in some sense too perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Like someone had choreographed it from the beginning of time, mm-hmm. right? So that just as they would mention this very thing, it would be illustrated physically. Yeah. The conditions of evil enchantment is that we don't allow ourselves to believe that's possible. Yeah. We say, well, it's just a coincidence. Now, so, so I mean, yeah, you mentioned earlier the the wonderful scene in Silver Chair, right? When mm-hmm. the children finally get all the way down to the depths, I mean, what a cool metaphor is that? They dig all the way down into the crud and the dirt 
and the mud and the darkness deep down in the interior, right? And they find the prince and the prince is in, you know, has been enchanted and they destroy the agency of his enchantment, the chair. And then the witch comes in and she first of all throws this sickeningly sweet you know, substance into the fire and it clouds their minds. They can hardly think. And then she starts playing this enchanting music, right? So they can't think, right? You know, music is on all the time, right? I don't want to think. I just want to hum along to the words, right? And then she starts telling them and this enchantment begins to get into their minds, right? Narnia? There's no Narnia. It's just something you dreamed up, right? And Lewis says that it actually felt good as they fall into the enchantment just to say, you know what? Yeah, there's nothing beyond this life deep underground. There's no overland. There's no Narnia. There's no sky. And there's she, no sun. And she says that the lamp, how, how does she put it about the lamp yeah. versus the sun? Yeah, exactly. This is pure transposition. Um, she says, well, what is your much vaunted overworld like? And they said, it has a sun. She says, what is sun as you call it? And they said, oh, it's kind of like that lamp over there. Except it's larger and it hangs from the sky. It says it hangs from the sky by a chain. No, not a chain. Hmm. How very curious that anytime I ask you to describe this much vaunted underworld, you just use natural imagery. It's all borrowed from mine. What is God? Uh, he's a great sort of eternal father. Hmm. Like a man with a beard. You're just projecting your natural experiences of your creaturely DNA and inventing something so that you feel less alone in the world, just like a child longs for his daddy when he's scared. That's evil enchantment. Yeah. And um, and which Puddleglum eventually breaks out of it by becoming this kind of hilarious, um, like temporarily sort of fundamental Christian and says, no, I believe if you're right, if this world is all there is, I'm going to live as if there is a God, in his case, an Aslan. I'm going to live in, in, in which there is an Aslan. Because your world is not worth living in. Mm. Yeah, that's the evil enchantment. And it's so it's so difficult for us, right? Because it's been habituated at us for, for hundreds of years. Are we called some sense, to be that's our modern desert? Are we called to be puddle glums now, breaking out? Yes. And I'm so Lewis is, you know, Lewis says you can't fake, right? Yeah. Um, like we so desperately want to so desperately want to believe that the Lord is close in so many ways that it would be easy to fake, right? It would be easy to, you know, um, to pretend to be more childlike than we actually are. And Lewis is really okay with us being, um, enjoying those seven minutes every three months. And our goal as a Christian is to stretch it to seven minutes and seven seconds. The next time I get a version, a true version of myself. And he's really okay with that sort of process of the Christian life and not having to demand. He just doesn't want us to fake. And so, um, so yes, to be um, to be a potaglum, he says again in transposition. Don't we sometimes, every once in a while, have moments in which our love is not lust, <laughs> right? And when you actually see a beautiful, attractive person, you know, um, and for a brief moment, see eyes and soul. Um, such that I'm, I'm grateful for an incarnation of beauty and I might, I might, you know, slip back into a mode that has to be like, you know, more carefully defended, but, you know, maybe for like, you know, like for 15 seconds, I see eyes and soul and, um, an interiority, right? Don't we every now and then have sometimes moments of true repentance, which I'm not just afraid of getting caught and I, nope. Yeah. Yep. This time I want to be clean. Yep. And so Lewis is really content with those sort of scattered moments in our life. And if we could try to gather those points together, lean into it, breathe that atmosphere of those moments, get a little bit better at that. Lewis sort of trusts that, um, well, a couple of things. That one, I think as Christians, we will, um, by the grace of God, by the prayers of our friends and uh, brethren, by holy reading, by even by literature, right? By good mm -hmm. podcast. That we'll get we'll get better at doing this thing, but in the end, he's okay. He's okay waiting until um, uh, he's okay until waiting until we get back to Overland for the fullness of the thing itself. 
And in the meantime, we try to realize as much as possible. But in some sense, right, he's okay. We're in pilgrimage. We are in exile. We live in Egypt. We live in the desert. And it hurts so bad when we remember our home country. And to a certain extent, I think we, you know, to the extent we can, we try to respond to it, never faking, um, always being authentic, always trying to expand those seven minute moments to seven minutes and 18 seconds, mm-hmm. then maybe add two seconds, you know, the month after that, such that you now what we would love would be, we'd love to be saints, what the medievals called saints in which here's how I define it. They're the ones who have the seven minute vision, but it just doesn't go away. <laughs> it's their and it's what our it's what in the philocalic tradition of the philokalia which mm-hmm. you know is being read by the way of a pilgrim right they call that recollection or vigilance and and they th- say that that's the single most important thing about the christian life is to remain vigilantly on guard so that you're connected with the inner vision of the heart mm-hmm. And thus, for our our medieval ancestors, they would say that's the single most important thing that you can do is to sort of maintain that seven minute vision all the time. And they even say crazy things like even in sleep, which yeah. is another story for another time. But Lewis, um, Lewis is content for us to be moderns who are wandering around the desert, and we get a little bit better at taking our natural life and having just a dusting of the supernatural. I'm sitting at my dinner table and I'm eating a meal and I'm surrounded by my family and most of the time it's chaotic and my teenagers haven't done their homework and my 11-year-old boy who's kind of going into a punk stage, right, is talking back to his mother, right? It's so easy just to get sort of like caught up in the flow of life, right, to be on the periphery of my being. But if I very temporarily, if I could say, God, this is good, um, I might get a little bit better, a little bit each day of sort of um, lifting up those things so that my natural life begins, just a dusting, begins to touch and taste sacramental. Wow. And that this is a a piano version of of what's to come. This is the vegetarian substitute. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Yeah, there's so much that that stirred up for me. I appreciate you. I'm going to put links. Uh, I'll link that article about Zuckerberg that you um, referenced and uh, your website as well uh, Great. in the show notes here. But um, anything else you want to uh, leave with our uh, viewers and listeners today? Yeah, I'm just so grateful to do this. And yeah, I, th- I think I thought of another yeah, another pairing of words. I remember maybe this will stir something up. I mentioned pneuma, you know, from the Greek. Another yeah. uh, another word was uh, angelos. You said they said you could either translate it angel or messenger, and it's like, hmm, do those always have to be different? You know, and the people that we meet, um, God could be more especially at work uh, in mm. those people, you know, to help us, to bless us, to aid us on on our journey. And um, I, right. I think I think. Even conversations, conversations like this can be a, a type of angel, a type of messenger for people to aid them on their journeys. All right, man, I'll leave your listeners with this. I just, it's kind of a crazy thought experiment, but um, what if the reality is that, um, you know, the the message of the of the angel that we read about in scripture, um, what um, liturgical traditions call the Annunciation, um, what if what if the reality is that there's sort of constant sort of messages like that? Mm. What if, in some sense, um, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to detract from the uh, the unusually supernatural message, but what if, in some sense, the heavens declare the glory of God and it's happening yes. all around us, and the angels are the one doing it, yes. such that there's even sort of ange- you know valuable angelic influence even in this moment. But we moderns who have lived in the conditions of the evil enchantment have been looking at the um, the fence for too long, can't see it, or in this case, can't hear it. Um, I think um, our ancestors would say, "What's wrong with you? <laughs> Don't you read anything?" Yeah. Right. Yeah. Of course, yeah. these things are constantly being communicated. Yeah. And Lewis says, "Okay, it's okay. Just repeat after me. I am a recovering modern, <laughs> and I'm going to get a little bit better about sort of retuning my soul." to um to the nature of reality i love that psalm 19 the heavens are declaring the glory of god it's that's those aren't just words it's reality all right dr baxter thank you for coming on today it was a joy to speak with you 
Man. Same here. Thanks so much. Yeah. See ya. Bye. I love yeah. your I love your enthusiasm and uh, what you're doing. And re- I mean, really, picking college students to um, to 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 teach them this such it's so needed. I have a college student of my myself right now, and yeah, it's really desperately needed in our world. Yeah, and dude, they're really hungry. They really are, and um, yeah, in 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 a in a fascinating way, they're actually hungrier than they even know. Yeah, as soon as you start talking about it, they start to say, "What, really?" Yeah, and um, it like angers me. Like the way is <laughs> another. Like I I see people, moms and and dads, in in like grocery stores, and they have their kids, their their two three year olds on phones, right? Yeah, like to me, that's abusive. Maybe that's extreme but even more abusive than homeschooling. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we classically educated homeschool our kids too. Um, yeah. But you know, that's, that's what some of the um, yeah. elected yeah. leaders have yeah. like to go into records. Yeah. But like you're forcing your kid yeah. to absorb this, this flat little tiny space when they could be yeah, dude. interacting with. Dude, the, that is the, that is the, the witch's very, enchantment right there. The very beings that yeah. are declaring the glory of God to them, or at least trying that's to. That's right, man. That's and they're right. just chained to that. And That's absolutely right. Oh, it's sickening to me. No, that's absolutely but, right. That is the witch's enchantment. And I yeah. think Lewis would have been all over that. Um, you remember even um, uh, Ransom says to Merlin, the enemies have this new engine of war. It's called the press. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you just like, you know, just... Put the press in a two-dimensional domain, right, on a screen, and then, um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate this. Thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for getting this happening, and uh, yeah, let me know when it, let me know when it launches, and look forward to it. I will. It'll it'll be just in a couple hours from now. Well, dude, okay, you're fast. Okay, I love doing it fresh. So. All right, man. Yeah, that's great. I I I need to be more like that with grading my students' papers. <laughs> Well, sometimes you get under evil enchantment and you can't. Yeah. Oof. And then you, it's hard to get out of it. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah. All Thanks right. so much. And I'll say a prayer for you. And I really appreciate your, uh, yeah, your kindness, your courtesy. And thanks for thinking of me. Thank you. Okay. Right. Take care. I'll see you. Bye.